0: Thank you. I will share my screen now. Mm Mm-hmm. Great. Right. Can you see it now? Everyone? Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the presentation on change management in intercultural environments. Before we even start, I would like to say thank you and congratulations because I think people want, uh, need, the world needs more people like you who do think that kindness is important and do spend their time, invest their time to participate and to speak in, in such a conference. So thank you, kudos to you. Today I'm going to share four criteria for effective change in intercultural environments. And you might ask, okay, but what's in it for me? Why should I listen to you today, Deanna? Well, the answer to that question is first, because we're going to talk about how to manage change in intercultural environments effectively. We're going to talk about how to contribute to individual and organizational well-being, which is for all of us, and we will become experts at the people side of change, thus increasing our success as colleagues, as mentors, and as leaders. A little bit about myself. I am very honored to have been chosen number one thought leader in diversity and inclusion and number seven thought leader in change management by Thinkers360. I wrote three books on moving abroad, which contain a lot of aspects regarding culture. And next week, I'm going to publish my first online course for people who want to move abroad. I worked and studied and volunteered in Bucharest, which is in Romania, in Cologne, in Germany and in Vancouver, Canada. But to be honest, I think we all should consider consider ourselves citizens of the world because if we do i think we have we have we are going to be more open and more inclusive towards everyone else i have professional background in governmental and non governmental organizations as well for the past 2 years i have chosen the path of or the hard path of entrepreneurship. And also I do volunteer in different organizations, such as Toastmasters. I volunteered and took care of, took care of SEALs at the Marine Mammal Rescue Center in Vancouver and other <laughs> things like that. I am very passionate about relationships and people. I'm also a relationship coach and this presentation and also this conference are very much in line with what I what is close to my heart. I like animals, as you might have noticed. I like otters, giraffes, and sloths especially, and I cannot convince my husband to have either of them. So we have a cat. This is Mr. Rasta, who is more famous on Instagram than both of us, my husband and I together. And last but not least, George, whom I call Mr. Husband very respectfully. Um, it, this is him, and I know since, I know him since we, I was two and he was five. Now let's move on to the important stuff. I would like to ask you, do you think we could have prepared for COVID? Yes, no, maybe, sometimes. (laughs) Yes, so most of us will say no, but I would argue that we could have prepared for COVID and not necessarily COVID from a pandemic perspective, but rather from a perspective of a change in workflow. And why is that? I believe that the status quo is an illusion. I believe that we cannot count that the status quo will stay the same as it is in this moment. And this is why I also believe that the organizations, the teams, and the individuals who were and are adaptable, responsive, and have this ability to change fast, those ones were the ones that were the most successful in this context. We have learned from ancient philosophies, from Buddhism, from yoga. We learned that everything is impermanent and that change is the only constant. And this is why I do believe that in the midst of change and chaos, the most or how to navigate change effectively becomes one of the most important skills in work and in life. And it's not only for People at work, it's not only for leaders or for managers, it's for all of us. But you will say change is hard and it is. And as people, we are naturally resistant to change. Why? Because change requires a lot of decision and willpower. Let's say that you need to, to learn something new or to learn to use a new technology. That requires a lot of energy from you. It requires for you to create new habits. And we know that habits take, some people say three weeks, some people say four weeks to, to build, and it requires energy from you, it, it makes you tired. And last but not least, it is stressful and why it creates stress for us. So the reason why is the following. So back in the day when we were chased by all saber-toothed tigers, we trained ourselves to notice the changes in pattern. So when we were looking at the bushes, if in the bushes there was a different color or there was a movement in the bushes, then we knew that that might mean danger for us. So when change happens, we associate change with stress. So, Why is this important? It's because knowing that change is hard for people, we can bring in more kindness and we can give them more support, give them more tools in order to deal with change and we can be more inclusive. And we also shouldn't be too hard on ourselves when we go through a stressful and a difficult situation and change because it is natural for us to feel stressed, to feel off and to find it hard. Now, when COVID hit, what did organizations do for their employees? Well, first of all, they provided them with infrastructure. They made sure that they have laptops or desktops at home so they can work. Secondly, they made sure that they have internet connection, that the employees have internet connection so they can collaborate and, and work with their colleagues. They might have sent some emails with some instructions on how to do things they organized more online meetings. Maybe they provided some trainings and the organizations who provided trainings for their employees, they're already doing a little bit of change management and that's great, but not everyone did. And they put in place some procedures. The thing is that these logistical and uh, administrative and technical things are important because without them we can't work, but they only represent the surface. So then, what is change management and why is change management important? Well, change management is the people side of change. So it's not the laptop, it's not the meeting, it's not the email, it's what happens with the person when change happens on the outside. Processes, technologies and structures and workflows are nothing without people. So if you don't make sure that the people are on board, then the change is not gonna be successful, the change is not going to be sustainable. But what employers will say, what team leaders will say, what people who have employees will say, that people are different and people are diverse. Absolutely, and to manage people is very difficult, even in times of peace and steadiness, Of course, it is even harder when it comes to change. We as individuals have different needs, different expectations, different behaviors. We are naturally resistant to change because, as I mentioned before, change is stressful, change is something that makes us feel uncomfortable. We don't want change. And last but not least, in times of stress, we go back to the basics. In times of stress, our deepest fears come out, our limiting beliefs come out, and we go back to our core values that are very ingrained to our, in our being. And all of the above are strongly influenced by, guess what, by culture. The why is culture more relevant now than it was ever before? And why am I stressing this out so much? It's because now we have more and more multinational companies or companies that um, collaborate with companies from all over the world. Thanks to internet and technology, we can collaborate with people from anywhere in the world and more and more remote jobs are offered and will be offered from now on, especially after COVID when we realize that we actually can work very well from home and we are not creating costs for the companies, for the organizations and also are not having hallway conversations, which are considered counterproductive. (laughs) All right. And migration is still going to happen. I know that, so I'm, because I am in the business of moving abroad, I can tell you that people move during COVID and they will move after COVID. So people who wanted to move to another country, this pandemic not only has um, they kept their desire alive, but in some cases it made it more it made it stronger because some people realize that the countries they're in, they cannot respond to crisis, so they absolutely want to move. So as I said, people will still fly away. I want to clarify why I use the term intercultural and not another term. So what is multicultural? Multicultural means that several cultures coexist but each cultural group does not necessarily have engaging interactions with each other or with the other. Cross-cultural means that one culture is often considered the norm And all other cultures are compared to the dominant one. As you can see, the purple feather here is the dominant one. In society, in intercultural societies, there is a deep understanding and respect for the other cultures. As you can see, I have here a pillow on which all the different feathers are laying together. That's the symbol of intercultural. So this is why I use the term intercultural because it has this positive connotation of people understanding and respecting each other's culture. I would rather use this even if it's not 100% true because it's something that we strive towards. So let's use intercultural more. Now what are the three levels of cultural type complexity and why is this so actually so so complex, so difficult to address? Because I'm not uh, talking at country level, I'm talking at organizational level. So the first level is of course the organizational level, the culture of an organization. Then we have the culture of a team and or a department. And I would like to stop here because I have a real life example. So when I I managed a project in um, healthcare and we introduced the front end speech recognition in the emergency department. And I can tell you that the implementation of the software was a success So we did, we created new workflows, everything was great from that perspective. But I, as a project manager, missed to understand or failed to understand the culture of that department. And because I didn't know how those people interacted with each other and how not supportive they were of each other, I didn't address that in my change management part of the project. And this is why they didn't adopt the front-end speech recognition, at least not at the beginning until we we adjusted and we addressed this cultural aspect. And last but not least, the individual level, so or the the level of the culture of each individual, which is given by their background, of course, and, and by their personality. And now... I am very excited about this part because this is something that I am very passionate about and maybe you are not, but I hope to make you through this uh, amazing slide. There are two models that um, define culture. They are world renowned and I, I'm almost sure that you know at least about one of them. The first one is Gerd Hofstede who came with five up with five dimensions to define culture. This is something that I learned in university, so it's fairly, well, it's old. <laughs> and they also added a new dimension recently. And then Erin Meyer, um, her book is called The Culture Map. I recommend it full-heartedly. She came up with eight criteria to define culture, and she is more focused on the professional environment. Very, very I don't know her, so she, she did a lot of research and it's very, very insightful what she shares in that book. All right, so let's go into each criteria. Now, I will, for the sake of time, I see that we already are 15 minutes in. I am not going to go deep into each of the dimensions and each of the criteria, but there are a lot of online resources on this. So let's start. The first dimension of Geert-Hobstitte is the power distance. And the power distance is the um, extent to which less powerful members of a group accept or expect that the power is distributed unequally. So basically, highly hierarchical or more flat organizations. Individualism versus collectivism. That's interesting. It's uh, to what extent are people expected to be part of groups or to be integrated into groups? This is something that I suffer very much for (laughs) because here in, in Vancouver, people are very individualistic and I come from a fairly collectivistic uh, culture, and it's something that that I miss, then masculinity and femininity is a preference of a society for achievement and for um, um, heroism over over caring for the others, nurturing for the others, and having a, a higher quality of life. Uncertainty avoidance. Now, this is the tolerance to ambiguity. In some cultures, people need to know everything clear and straight and they, they don't tolerate ambiguity. For example, in Germany, they want to have everything structured and everything needs to be like, you know, of work according to the plan. Whereas in other cultures, those cultures are a little bit more entrepreneurial. They are more flexible, they are more adaptable. And I would, I would um, bring here as an example, the, the U.S. Long-term orientation. It means that some cultures are more oriented towards the past, towards tradition, and some some, uh, some cultures are oriented more towards the future. And this last dimension, which I find very interesting and I like very much, is indulgence versus restraint, meaning if people want to have fun and if they allocate time for fun. In Japan, for example, there is a lot of restraint, and people do not allocate time for fun. And in other countries, maybe like Latin countries, people do want to have fun and allocate time for that, or in Greece, for example. Okay, now let's go to Erin Myers' uh, um, criteria. The first one is communicating, and this is more um, regarding low versus high context communication. So am I telling you directly what I, what I mean and my opinion, or am I, or do I put my message between the lines and you need to understand it? Evaluating. It's direct negative feedback versus indirect negative feedback. Persuading. This is an interesting one. So what do different cultures use in order to persuade each other? In countries like Germany, for example, they like stats and theory and literature, whereas in countries like the US, they are based on real life examples, on case studies, on how other companies have done it. So they are uh, persuaded more by practical reality-based things. Leading. Again, here, this is very similar to power distance. It's um, egalitarian versus hierarchic leading. Deciding, is it top-down? Someone tells you what to do, or is it more consensual? Uh, Trusting. Now, trusting can be on one side of the spectrum task-based, and on the other side of the spectrum, trust-based. So, do I trust you because we have the common interest in solving something or do I trust you because I know that we have a relationship and you will work together with me? Disagreeing, are we confrontational, as French people are, or rather non-confrontational? And scheduling, is time linear or is time fluid? with fluid timeline, fluid deadlines. I have here a very funny story with my friend who worked in Mexico and the, she was asking her colleagues in Mexico, okay, when is this going to be ready? And the answer was, ahorita. Ahorita means um, right away-ish, something like that. And right away-ish could have meant by the end of the day, it could have been tomorrow, next week, so that was absolutely not clear what, where, what the deadline was for that to be read. All right, for the uh, purpose of this presentation, I am going to take out indulgence versus restraint, just because there is not a lot of research there. And I'm going to, to try to combine all of these 13 dimensions criteria into four, also because it's easier to see them like that, and also because there are a lot of overlaps. So how do we do that? So power distance with leading and deciding, I put them together in decision-making. Individualism versus collectivism, masculinity versus femininity and trusting, I put them under the label of relationships. Uncertainty avoidance, communicating, And then all the other three here, evaluating, persuading, and disagreeing, I do believe that they belong under communication or the large umbrella of communication. And I named them, surprise, surprise, communication. And long-term orientation and scheduling and their time. All right, so these would be the four umbrella criteria. And let's use some animations here. Now, Remember when I told, when oh, that slide where we mentioned what we did for our employees when COVID hit? I told you that everything that we did was below above the surface. Well, these, decision-making, relationships, communication, and time are the things that are below the surface and affect the person internally. All right, so let's look at each of them in the next slide. Let's look closer as how decision making is defined. So what's the spectrum? It's from highly hierarchical to flat and egalitarian, top down deciding to consensual deciding. How are relationships defined? That's the spectrum. From orientation or importance of individual achievement versus group harmony. Orientation towards hard target or importance on high target and hard work versus work-life balance. Task-based, practical, contextual relationships. Remember where we have that temporary common interest, and that's when we have a relationship with that person, or long-term trust-based relationships that we nurture consciously. How is communication defined? Well, from low certainty, where, remember we talked about those, um, those cultures that don't like ambiguity, they want things to be clear and structured and, um, hmm, what's the, the English word? So they, they, they know what's going to happen, or high uncertainty, where things are flexible, when people, where people have this entrepreneurial way of um, approaching things. Is the communication explicit and clear, or is it implicit and between the lines? From direct negative feedback to indirect negative feedback, from confrontational to avoiding confrontation altogether, principles first, stats, literature, theory, or application first. Remember the case studies, the very concrete examples that persuade people. And last but not least, how is time defined? Are we focused on the past and tradition and habit, or are we focused on the future? And is the time fluid or is the time linear and the the culture wants to maximize time as much as possible and planning in, I don't know, five minute increments. Now in the next slide, I would like to propose a model a model that I came up with in order to understand what happens to these cultural aspects when we are dealing with change. Usually because the status quo changes during a time of crisis, so does the, do these cultural aspects. And let me show you what I mean by that. Let's take the example of relationships. Remember we talked about the what, how are they defined? So you've seen this already. Now let's say that before COVID, let's take the example of, uh, for COVID. Let's say that before COVID, our team was more focused on group harmony. But then because they started working from home, they stopped having those hallway conversations and now those social interactions, they moved towards individual achievement. And now the culture is more more individualistic or more um, towards my own success, my own achievement. Let's say that the work life balance was somewhere in the middle, or that the orientation before COVID was somewhere between high targets, hard work, and work life balance. But now, as people spent more time at home, they spent less time traveling, the, the culture and the preference moved towards work life balance. And now, maybe more people want to work from home just because they realize that this is also possible and they have more time with their family. This is just an example. So for the sake of of explaining this model. And let's say that the culture before COVID was more trust-based, but now, again, because people don't work together as much and because it's harder for them to communicate, then they just communicate when they have a common interest and they need to solve a task. And how do we use this information? Let's take the first example. we moved from a culture oriented towards group harmony, towards um, culture that is more puts more importance of in, on individual achievement. The, question, the first question is, is this change welcome, positive and sustainable? And we need to look at it from an individual point of view, from a team point of view and from an organization point of view. So do people like this change? Do they welcome it? Does the team as a whole welcome it? And does the organization welcome it? And based on these answers, we need to ask ourselves, do we need to move people back towards group harmony? Do we want to encourage them to go more towards individual achievement? Or do we just want to keep them where they are because it's good? And last but not least, what type of support do they need to be successful? What type of new information they need? What type of new skills and training do they need to be successful in this new situation? And what type of tools do they need? And I know these questions are very heavy, they have a lot of um, potential, I don't know, uncertainty in them and lack of clarity but if we manage to answer these questions we will know how to address the change and how to make that change to to turn the change into something positive into something sustainable for our people for our teams and for our organization so let's look at some examples just to to make you think, because again, this is just scratching the surface. But let's say that we want to move the spectrum um, of decision-making towards a more consensual culture or a more consensual approach. What can we do? For example, we can take an anonymous survey on the needs, the challenges, the expectations, and the suggestion of the employees, and then discuss them together as a group. That would be One potential strategy. And again, based on the teams or your teams or the teams that you are part with or or, um, lead, this can look completely different. If, um, if your team is, if you know your team, you will know what works for them. Then maybe you want to move the spectrum towards group harmony. What can we do? We can do maybe online team buildings with games or organize physically distant gatherings. If we want to move the communication spectrum towards direct feedback, what can we do? We can organize 360 uh, feedback workshops where each member can express their opinions on how the others dealt with the change and to give improvement suggestions. And if we want to move the time um, spectrum towards future planning or long-term planning, we can help our teams or individuals create a plan A, but then also create a plan B and C in order for them to see different or to explore different ways of how the future can look like and to to bring their mindset into long-term planning rather than short-term planning. So again, these are just examples to get our minds going. But as you can see, there is no one size fits all solution. But the process in assessing all of this is first to understand the culture, the existing culture at each of the three levels, organizational, team, or departmental level and individual level to uh, identify the modifications in culture in the four aspects due to the crisis situation. In this case, the the example that we looked at today was was COVID. And those four aspects are decision-making, relationships, communication, and time. Identify the people's needs in the new context. Identify their expectations, their desires, and I believe it's very important to identify their suggestions as well and last but not least decide on your tailored solution. And now it's time for your questions, and I would also like to ask for your feedback. So I think this is very this would be very valuable to me to for you to to share with me how useful or how practical you found this and if you have improvement suggestions I'll be more than happy to to receive them. All right. It's too much to my clients because my clients are people who move abroad rather. So that's that's my fo- the focus on my business. When, but when it comes to, to your question, you know, I find that most of the people are sad for the fact that they've lost this human connection. You know, those happiness hormones of oxytocin are not released as much as they were before. But... So a lot of people are looking forward to go back, but what I've noticed, and this is something that I think needs to be addressed is the fact that now people are getting more and more used to not working in groups and not meeting in person. And I have talked to some people who actually um, even became a little bit nervous or anxious at the thought that they need to be in groups again, and it's not necessarily people who are introverted. It's not necessarily people who who don't like being a part of the groups or who were who had challenges with that before. It's just that after so many months of being on their own, you know, at home, um, being in a very controlled environment. it it has become a little bit stressful for them to go back into the world in general and then into their teams at work in particular. But I I do believe that there is a lot. Oh, oh, and then I talked to my friends from San Francisco who are in the IT industry, and um, they are starting to look for houses outside of San Francisco because their companies have announced that they won't bring them back to work. They realize that they can work from home very well. They will not have those hallway conversations anymore. and I actually this thing with hallway conversation is not something that I came up with. It's something that I heard from a person working in San Francisco in um, one of the biggest you know companies, and they say they said that it's in the company's interest for people not to have those. Hallway conversations and the fact that they are at home. That um, means that they don't um, They won't have these relationships with each other and they will focus on work and more than that, um, the organization, people being At home and isolated from each other. They won't have a power as a group. Anymore. So in case they don't like something or in case they want to ask for something they cannot necessarily group anymore because they will not have that direct connection. So this does not answer your question directly and I'm sorry it just just came to my mind when you asked asked. but um, I do believe that we are moving towards more remote jobs where people will interact less and less I've seen, so I receive notifications on LinkedIn, and more and more jobs are remote. But I am a very big advocate for people meeting in person. So I think nothing can replace that ultimately. Yes. Yes, yes. Oh well, no, and thank you for the feedback. It, it means a lot. And as, as you, we say, you know, the quality of your life is the quality of your relationships. The relationships enrich, enrich your life tremendously. And if you decide to isolate, then, I mean, do not decide there's this context and then maybe it's just more comfortable or easier to just be at home, then this will not uh, contribute to the quality of our life. And on the contrary. Yes yeah yes) <laughs> Mm -hmm. Thank you, (laughs) Missy. Always amazing questions and very complex as well. Well, first of all, you know, as I said, change is hard. And when we accept that and we can bring more kindness towards ourselves, when we go through a change, we can bring more kindness towards other people and um, to the world in general right I know that people who go through you know this move abroad that that I mentioned and uh, those people that I <laughs> try to serve they sometimes don't know why they feel overwhelmed and don't know why they're so stressed and why they're so tired and they want to go to sleep so early at night and I'm like I'm, I'm telling them you need to be compassionate and to have kindness towards yourself because you are going through one of the biggest changes in your life right now you're, you need to rest, you need to recharge, you need to recover. So that's one thing. Understanding that change is hard for people, no matter how small or how, how big. That's the first thing that we need to understand in order to bring more kindness towards ourselves and towards um, others. And then, yeah, so that, that would be the, maybe the major thing. The fact that and, and, you know, when I believe that pe- when people are treated with kindness and understanding and with, uh, you know, the concept of loves that, you know, very well, then they will be, they will feel supported and they will be able to, you know, to, to move from that as is um, state or the current state into the future state because they feel that support. They feel that they are seen for who they are. They are understood for who they are. Their fears, their frustrations, their hardship and their stress is acknowledged and validated. And they're not judged for that, right? So when when we don't judge people, but rather meet them where they are, Then we will get a completely different response from them than when we force them to do something without them understanding why. Something. Mm -hmm. All right. Marilyn, I think we are done. Yes,
1: (laughs) I am. break Mm, coffee break thank you thank you Yes, let us let us take a coffee break. Coffee break is always welcome.